It's Monday, February 5th, 2018, and you're listening to The Lit Review, a literary podcast for the movement. My name is Monica Trinidad, here with my co-host Paige May. Before we dive into episode 41, we'd like to thank our Lit Review sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by the Critical Studies MA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art. Because we need to talk, read, interrogate, intervene, and reimagine like never before. For more information or to apply, visit pnca.edu. We'd also like to thank the Arca Center for Social Justice Leadership, an initiative out of Kalamazoo College whose mission is to develop and sustain leaders in human rights and social justice through education and capacity building. In this episode, we bring you the Lit Review Live from the Hairpin Arts Center and For the People Artist Collective's exhibition, Do Not Resist, 100 Years of Chicago Police Violence. We chatted with Simon Balto and Toussaint Lussier, two radical authors and professors, about Simon's upcoming book, Occupy Territory, Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power, coming out in this fall of this year. show. Our first live show was with, with uh, Adrienne Marie Brown, uh, and that was really cool. And it was like in, it was like in my living room, yeah. it was very condensed with people, and it was really hot. I um, remember how it ended and we all sat in each other's laps. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I don't, th- morning, I don't think so. Yeah, we here. took a group photo with Adrienne Marie Brown. <laughs> Paige was on one knee, I was on the other knee, and we were like, hey, <laughs> not going to do that with you all. Um, but yes, yeah, so first off, I want to thank the space, uh, Hairpin Arts Center, for hosting us. Thank you so much. Give it up for them. Uh, and then I want to thank our exhibition sponsors, which is the Propeller Fund, Crossroads Fund, American Friends Service Committee Chicago, People's Response Team, Uptown People's Law Center, Prison and Neighborhood Arts Project, People's Law Office, National Lawyers Guild Chicago, NEIU, Love and Protect, and Amer- Arab American Action Network. And I would like to, yes, let's give him a round of applause. I would like to thank our podcast sponsors who help us get things like all this equipment that you see, Ubers when I'm running really late, things like that. (laughs) And they are the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Give it up for them. MA program at the Pacific Northwest College of Art because we need to talk, read, interrogate, intervene, and reimagine like never before. So, um, also, it's really funny that all these like schools outside of Chicago are sponsoring us, but not a Chicago school. <laughs> Find your universities. Uh, just saying. So, uh, I want to ground us in the. <laughs> Is there somebody here at a, from a university? No? Okay. <laughs> oh, hey, what's up? Oh, yeah. All right, so um, I want to ground us in the space that we're occupying today. Um, So Hairpin Arts Center um, is is the main site of our citywide multi-site exhibition, featuring over 30 pieces, uh, highlighting incidents of Chicago police violence from 1917 to 2017. 
Um, it's creating a visual timeline of the long legacy of police violence in our city. Um, there is also a five video installation called Present Absence by Salome Chasnoff and Meredith Zelke. Um, and that features interviews with family members who um, tell us about the lives of the loved ones that they've lost to police violence. That's back through the hallway there to the right, so definitely um, spend some time in there um, at the end of this podcast. Um, this space also features a hall of resistance featuring the photography work of Sarah G. Um, woo -woo! And also... Also, a dedicated meditative Reiki space installed by artist Zitali Unahem, um, who is not here tonight, um, but it's in the back room, or in that back tent there. And if you feel like you need a like some time out, some you know space to just reflect, you can definitely sit in there, lay in there, do whatever you want in there. Um, the other space that we have is Roman Susan Gallery, that's up in Rogers Park, and that space really emphasizes reflection um, and remembrance as praxis in our day-to-day -day spade work of organizing an activism against police violence and state violence. Um, and as we're highlighting this time-based remembrance of incidences and uh, historical moments, we also really need to pause, right? We need to pause and to, and to commit to memory the lives that have been lost to police violence. So that space really features um, portraiture work by artists uh, Don B. Kim, uh, Joanna Booth, Carla Agueta. Um, there's an ofrenda or an altar uh, dedicated to those lost to Chicago police violence. And there's also, also a shortened version of family interviews um, that are featured in the back room there. Our third space is Yuri Eichen Gallery, that's over in Pilsen, and that's our resistance space, uh, featuring all solo photo collage work by longtime civil rights uh, uh, attorney and photographer Larry Redman, uh, showing Chicago fighting back, Chicago resisting, and Chicago's fight for CPAC, which is a civilian police accountability council. Uh, last but not least, our space Art in These Times is in Logan Square, so we did like a circle back over here. Um, and that's housed within the, the walls of In These Times, uh, and that's an independent nonprofit magazine dedicated to advancing democracy and economic justice since 1976. Um, and so that space focuses on themes of historical reporting and data um, on police violence as pedagogy um, and as a tool for uncovering a long legacy of uh, Chicago police violence. Uh, there's two installations there. One is by the Invisible Institute on the case of Diana Bond um, in 2013. And there's also a video by Teresa Campagna featuring uh, an ACT UP meeting uh, from 1991 on police violence against LGBTQ people in Chicago. Those are our four spaces. Uh, they're going to be up until, this one's up until February 10th. Uh, and the others are like February 2nd and 3rd. Um, it's varying in times. Uh, definitely check all of those spaces out. All of our open hours are on our website for thepeoplecollective.org. Uh, and we're really excited. Actually, the Chicago Reader just did a piece about it, which was really exciting. And the Tribune, which I was really uh, surprised by. They don't write about us. They don't write about us. No. Yeah, and, but they refer to us as, okay, so <laughs> our collective is For the People Artists Collective. So the initials are FTP. They refer to us as FPAC. Because <laughs> I know that they didn't want to put FTP in Chicago Tribune. Uh, so that was funny, and we made them change it. Well <laughs> but we're like, no, it's FTP, and they issued an apology. <laughs> so I am actually going to take a moment to introduce our wonderful guest sitting to my left. Hey, welcome. Hey. Back and here. Well, both of you are back, I guess. Yeah. So the first, I want that, I'm going to just read your bios, all right? And then y'all can introduce yourselves however you want like, after. But first, we have Simon Balto, is that right? Yeah, Balto. Balto, Balto. Like, like the Balto. Disney movie. Okay, all right. Is there what? Okay. Simon Balto is an assistant.
assistant professor of history who specializes in African American history and is also the director of African American studies at Ball State. Broadly speaking, his research focuses on the long black freedom struggle since the Civil War. His current work focuses specifically on policing in black Chicago from the 1910s to the 1970s. His first book, Occupied Territory, Policing Black Chicago from Red Summer to Black Power, which sounds so amazing, will be published by the University of, Uni will be published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2018 as a part of UNC's Justice, Power, and Politics series. Woo! Yes. yes. <laughs> so exciting. Yes. If I went to grad school, that would have been, that, yeah, that's what's up. We also um, Google searched you, yeah. and uh, Google told me that you are an alt folk writer and singer too. Is that correct, or is that another person? No, that's true. That's you, yes! Yay. That's so cool. Do you have a banjo? Uh, do I have a banjo? Yes, you can. No, banjo. I have a lot of banjo jokes. Okay, that, <laughs> that works. That's <laughs> okay. All right. Toussaint Lossier okay, is an assistant professor of the W.E.B. Du Bois Department of Afro-American Studies at University of Massachusetts Amherst, my old stopping grounds. Dr. Hey. Lossier holds a PhD in history from the University of Chicago with his research focusing on grassroots responses to the post-war emergence of mass incarceration in Chicago. He is co-author of Rethinking the American Prison Movement with Dan Berger and preparing a book manuscript titled War for the City, Black Chicago, and the Rise of the Carceral State. Tucson, why'd you leave us? Why, why are you uh, not in Chicago anymore? Um, <laughs> why did I leave you? Because uh, someplace else offered me a job. So I so uh, I want to just jump right into it. Simon, your upcoming book, Occupied Territory, um, it's going to be the first major book-length history of racialized policing in urban America. Uh, what made you choose to focus on Chicago? Um, so, I mean, as an upper Midwesterner, I, so, so I, I come from Wisconsin originally. So I, I was born in Milwaukee. I grew up in southwest Wisconsin. And um, I took a very meandering route to... Um, I guess everything in my life. Um, but I ended up moving to Chicago after my undergrad and I, was, I didn't really have a clear direction of what I was doing. But I ended up taking classes at Roosevelt when I was here. I was working, I was working in Evanston as a cook at a, at, a, um, at a cafe near Northwestern and was taking night classes at, at uh, Roosevelt. And it was, I guess, in Chicago that I really began, I mean, as somebody that was raised in pretty rural Wisconsin, um, that where I really began to come full face with urban everything. I mean, urban inequality. I mean, like, I, even though I was born in Milwaukee, I grew up as a person of color in, in, in rural Wisconsin, which had its own unique kind of dynamics. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I grew up in relative privilege in terms of class privilege and stuff like that. And so when I moved to Chicago, it was the place that, that everything kind of became real. And so when I ended up going to graduate school, it was, a, it was the city that I knew. I mean, and so that was, that kind of became the research focus. Um, I will say that I didn't immediately start out as wanting to talk about the CPD, that actually when I started graduate school, I wanted to write about Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. Um, and for various reasons that are just kind of academic, minutia. Um, people told me that maybe I should find a different project at that time. Um, don't worry, I'm coming back to that project next. <laughs> um, but um, so, and so instead I, I, I looked at one of Fred Hampton's major concerns, which was the repressiveness of the Chicago Police Department. So, um, so that was really what led me to Chicago itself and to looking at policing in Chicago. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, according to the title of your book, you start with Red Summer, and I'm actually wondering if we could start by asking both of you to talk about the significance of Red Summer, what happens, um, you know, for you specifically, Simon, like why did you start there, and what, what's important to lift up, but can, it, I'll, I'll turn to you after and just kind of build on that. Yeah, I mean, for me it was, so Red Summer for me is important because it is, it's this moment when, like, black Chicago as, as black Chicago as we know it, like, coheres in the national imagination in a lot of ways. I mean, like, obviously there's, I mean, even before the, the Great Migration starts, I mean, there are thousands of black folks here. But, I mean, during the Great Migration, it's, I mean, it just becomes what it is, right? Um, and so, for me, I wanted to backtrack it to that point in time to think about, well, like, okay, so what is, what is the relationship between the police department in Chicago and black Chicago look like from the moment that, that black Chicago really becomes what we know it as, mm -hmm. or becomes, starts to become that? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in Red Summer is, I mean, it's a hallmark moment of, that, of the Great Migration, right? I mean, and so you have, you have, during the Great Migration, hundreds of thousands of people that come to Chicago looking for something better. I mean, like, they're not, they're not as naive as a lot of, you know, characterizations of them have made them appear. I mean, like, they know that it's not going to be some utopia, but they are assuming that it's going to be better. And uh, Red Summer is kind of one of those moments that serves as a reminder of how big a violation that promise is going to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, so one of the, I mean, one of the things about Red Summer that I think is important to understand is that, um, you know, when Red Summer happens, I mean, when when white folks kill Eugene Williams at the beach on the south side and the city explodes into a riot um, that kills 38 Chicagoans. I mean, there are, I think there are two things that are worth knowing. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we, I mean, at least for the sake of time. The first is that um, the reason that riot explodes is because, I mean, the, the initial catalyst for it is because a white officer on the beach refuses to arrest people who have just killed mm -hmm. a black kid. Um, so, bar none, like even, I mean, whether you're talking about the post, post quote unquote riot report, whether you're talking about the actual chief of police in Chicago, like they all say the reason for the riot is because this guy, Daniel Callahan, wouldn't arrest the guy who killed Eugene Williams. The other thing that's worth understanding, though, is that like there's a broad context to it, right? I mean, so, so 1919, when Chicago explodes in Red Summer, it comes in the midst of a widespread, years-long terrorist campaign of white Chicagoans against black Chicagoans that goes completely unpunished by the Chicago Police Department. So between 1917 and 1921, there's something like, I mean, I forget the exact number, but there's, there's 40 or 50-some bombings of black Chicagoans' homes and businesses that go completely unpunished. I mean, I think there's one arrest that happens from between all of those. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you have, um, that you have the, uh, the NAACP essentially trying to do the Chicago Police Department's job for it. So they're talking about launching their own investigations into trying to figure out who's committing these crimes because the police department's not gonna do it. Right. And so, um, so, you know, with Red Summer, for me, the, I started there because it is, um, because I think it's an important moment of community formation and it's an important like, community hallmark. But it's, I, I guess, so the third thing that's probably worth knowing is that that's not the first moment of like, mm -hmm. of, you know, of, of really just police negligence mm -hmm. when it comes to black life in the city. I just wanna make a quick caveat. I said earlier that I, 
left Chicago because somebody offered me a job. If somebody in Chicago wants to offer me a job, I can, I'm willing, I'm open to coming back. Like it's not yeah, a, Western, you yeah, it was, yes. I just want to. Can I, can I piggyback <laughs> off that? <laughs> I assure you when this, when this podcast is released, over a thousand people will listen to that. So okay. hopefully cross to, your fingers, you know, plug, share the podcast. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I'm sure, I'm sure my colleague feels the same way. Yeah, yeah, um, I do. I, I would only add that I think um, when I've taught classes to undergrads about uh, this moment in African-American history, um, I think the thing that also um, uh, stands out, when, especially when you look at a lot of the, the writing of the period, is um, in, in addition to the um, kind of wave of violence that's taking place in Chicago at this period of time that kind of Red Summer typifies, um, this is also, there's also, uh, um, uh, extreme amounts of racial violence that are taking place all across the country mm -hmm. and riots similar to the ones that are happening in Chicago that are taking place in major urban areas across the country, uh, as well as um, uh, a massive number of, uh, a significant number of lynchings that are taking place in the South as well too. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I, I also try to point out is um, Red Summer is also the sort of, um, the opening act of what's oftentimes referred to as the New Negro Movement. And it's kind of like a weird thing to talk about now because of the terminology, but um, uh, this sort of the New Negro Movement or New Negro Era um, that sort of lays the groundwork for the uh, massive increase in um, the uh, Marcus Garvey's organizing as well as the um, uh, the Harlem Renaissance and so on, um, is seen as a moment where black folks are no longer sort of just like kind of turning the other cheek and sort of taking whatever is doled out to them. Uh, are the kind of accommodationist politics that's associated with Booker T. Washington and sort of folks within his network, but more of an instance of uh, a greater sense of militancy, a greater um, commitment to uh, forms of self-defense, whether violent or nonviolent, and organizing to sort of fight back and assert um, um, civil rights, um, what would later be understood as human rights, and even some various different forms of kind of black nationalist politics. So um, I, um, I oftentimes try to point, to stu point students to ways in which kind of um, Red Summer is, um, was captured in the national imagination because you had uh, black uh, veterans from World War I who come back to Chicago and are seeing, you know, uh, having sort of gone abroad to make the world safer democracy, come back and find that not only is sort of democracy not necessarily applied to African Americans, but also uh, the sort of um, kind of um, uh, pogroms that kind of had marked um, uh, different parts of Europe for a significant period of time when it came to people who were religious minorities and what have you, were kind of being executed on, on African Americans at that moment in time. And you have um, not only black veterans who organize and sort of, you know, shoot back at people who are coming, who are kind of um, uh, uh, white folks who are coming into to, um, the black belt and attempting to kind of um, terrorize people uh, in those neighborhoods, but you also get instances afterwards of significant amounts of organizing with the best example being, or one of the better examples being, a group called the African Blood Brotherhood, which is a sort of secret um, uh, radical organization. Some of it, um, some of it made up of immigrants 
black immigrants uh, from the West Indies who come to the US, as well as uh, former um, uh, black veterans who basically are trying to sort of organize and figure out how do you deal with not only the contradictions of racial oppression, but also um, capitalism of um, various different forms of uh, marginalization within the United States. How do you really try to figure out a way to organize that's not simply about um, uh, demanding civil rights, but trying to figure out how to overturn, overturn the system in various different ways. Mm -hmm. And um, that sort of militant spirit mm -hmm. is one of the things that kind of gets put on display in some instances uh, during Red Summer, but is also one of the products that comes out of it. So Simon, what, what happens after Red Summer? Like I feel like I, I don't really hear often about Chicago police violence between the 20s and the 40s. Like the only incident that I really hear about is the Memorial Day Massacre, which happened in my old stomping grounds, basically, uh, at Republic Steel. Um, so can you talk about what, what's in your book that you cover around that era or the decade? Sure, yeah, I mean, and so, so the, the book, so my book is, it's not, it's not just about police violence, it's about, it's really about, um, it focuses very much on black Chicago, and it's about really about the construction of this racially repressive regime in black Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't really talk about any of that without talking about the issue of violence. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, part, I mean, so between Red Summer and the Memorial Day Massacre, I mean, you have, on the one hand, you have everyday violence. I mean, yeah. you just have, I mean, it's, it's a fact of, it's a fact of life mm -hmm. when you're dealing with the police in this city and many other cities. Um, I think it's important in the 1920s to, like, it's not so systematized, like, it's not, you, know, you don't, like, it's not, like, they don't, there's not, like, training manuals on, like, on how to, you know, subdue folks and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, one of the things that, one of the core things that I think is most important in terms of thinking about how violence factors into this equation between Red Summer and the Memorial Day Massacre, I guess, and for those of you who aren't familiar, the Memorial Day Massacre happens um, on the south side in 1937 where the Chicago Police Department is housed by Republic Steel. I mean, like, they, they are literally, like, fed and housed by a steel corporation um, to try to subdue striking workers, and they end up killing 10 of them. Um, so that's how they had tear gas and those long white batons, because mm. they were issued by Republic Steel, right? Because yeah. at the time, police, Chicago police didn't have tear gas. No, I mean, Chicago police, I mean, like, 1930s, like, Chicago police resources are not great. Right. Um, but, like, but they're also, but they're also hand in fist with Chicago's yeah. corporations. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that's where Chicago's police get their origins. I mean, Chicago police is literally founded by corporations. Mm -hmm. I mean, to, pro to protect capital interests. Mm -hmm. um, but so, so to, to, finish that, to finish this first thought, um, so I think one of the, one of the really interesting uh, pieces here is that, you know, between Red Summer and, and uh, the Memorial Day Massacre, I mean, there are those pieces of everyday violence that people are dealing with all the time, um, but there's also resistance to it, um, particularly in the, um, particularly during the early Great Depression, mm -hmm. particularly surrounding the Communist Party. And so... Uh, police violence in that sense intersects in, in different ways. I mean, so on the one hand, you have the Chicago police who, through its Red Squad, is trying to repress any radical activity it can and anything that it just doesn't like and characterizing it as radical activity as such. Um, so you have extraordinary police violence that is cascading down upon people who are trying to organize just for basic human needs, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so to try to just get 
you know, try to find work, try to find, uh, try to find food, try to find housing. So, I mean, a lot of what's going on during the early 30s is like anti-eviction protests that the police are then coming in and busting up all these people who are trying to protest around evictions. And so you have police violence that's coming into play there, but then that also becomes an animating, an animating grievance around the ways that people organize. So then as people are, compl as people are, are organizing around evictions, as people are organizing around uh, food programs, as people are organizing around jobs, police violence becomes a piece of that equation. So, I mean, the mayor gets hung in effigy because, uh, the mayor gets hung in effigy by the Communist Party in 1931 or 32 because of the issue of police brutality. And part of that is, uh, is coming after uh, what's uh, this horrible event that happens on the South Side in, 30, in August of 31, I believe, where you have a, a significant group of mostly black members and fellow travelers of the Communist Party who go to the house of a 71-year-old woman who has just been evicted, um, and they, like, they take her belongings that the Sheriff's Department has helped move out of her house onto the sidewalk, and organizers take her belongings, physically put them back into the house in violation of the legal code, and then this explodes into this confrontation between activists and police officers, and police officers end up killing three black men. And so, and then you have parades through, I mean, through the loop, through the South Side. I mean, like, there's like 50,000 people that are parading that in essentially parading in memorial for these men who have been killed by the police. I mean, so, so there's all, I mean, you know, the, like, it's, there's a lot that happens between, yeah. the, between Red Summer and the 1940s in terms of police violence. Um, I have somewhat of a follow-up, and I think this um, can be opened up to both of you. But uh, So as someone who organizes currently, I'm often thinking about um, the, the dangers of organizing around the moments of, of people getting shot 16 times, right, yeah. where it creates this spectacle of violence, right, and you create a new normal of, like, what is deemed as worthy of protest, right? Um, and I think about how, um, like I work with a lot of young black people and they might all know A. Laquan, but the reality, like when, they, when I ask like, what are the police in your life? It's not that, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's stop and frisk, right? right? It's like right. bogus arrests, right? Yeah. It's, um, it's more, and, and so what is the mundane that's happening in, uh, that's developing what like there's these spectacle moments right these spectacular big mm -hmm. things but like what is being established as the new normal mm -hmm. um, that people and I think that's equally important to be lifting up like I remember when I saw Selma how they have whips on and I don't know if that's real like I, mm -hmm. I wasn't there I saw the fictional version right um, but they have the cops have whips and mm -hmm. I was like you know F SWAT and all this like militarization of the police and yeah. these in air quotes like I think yeah, that's yeah. white people leading that push against anti-militarization like mm -hmm do they have whips? Like, that's way scarier to me, right? Mm -hmm. And that says a lot more. Because um, it doesn't, you know, they're hurting a lot of young people I care about without, without yeah. literally shooting them 16 times. I mean, so, so for me, militarization is, is like, it's an important issue, but that does in a little, in some ways, kind of obscure how that everyday dynamic works, right? Yeah. I mean, because, I mean, I guess, I mean, what do we, do we say we're thankful for the fact that, like, most, most kids aren't going to be Laquan? I mean, that's a pretty low bar. Um, but the reality is, is that it's still gonna be, I mean, people's relationships to the police are still gonna be pretty horrible, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, I mean, if you're, if you're asking historically what that looks like in terms of how that, how that normal gets established, I mean, so 
the way that I've seen a lot of it happen is um, in the research that I've done, at least, I mean, that you, see, you can see, I mean, if you, if you do the research, you see the construction of this regime that we have in place today. I mean, so part of what my, part of what I, like, figured out with my book, or at least what I think I figured out with my book that I argue with my book that people like Toussaint when, you know, can poke holes in my oh, argument, but. Man, <laughs> good, <laughs> bro, you good, man, I'm not gonna. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, I mean, so so we have this narrative that like that that the stuff that we're that we're dealing with today is new yeah. or like recent, right? Yeah. Um, it's not. I mean, it's just like I mean, we can look at the history and see how that unfolds. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does have a lineage, and so you know, part of that lineage. I mean, so so for me, the way that I the the way that I kind of figure the way that I see it, at least according to my research, is that a lot of this begins to kind of unfold in the late 1940s, early 1950s. Um, particularly surrounding just this mass hysteria that a lot of people have, both like liberal reformers in Chicago um, and conservatives in Chicago, most of them white, um, who are basically, who are concerned that the police are not doing enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So like we have this narrative that says that like, that the war on drugs and the war on crime in like 1965 and 1970, 1980, like those are the moments that we need to look to. By 1965, everything essentially that we see is already in place in Chicago. I mean, it really is. I mean, that we, we, we see from 1960 onward, we see the sophistication of that regime. But I mean, you know, stop and frisk is initially implemented during prohibition in Chicago. I mean. And it gets really formalized as like act- as like commonplace police tactic, almost uniformly applied singularly to black people in the 1950s. I mean that you know like during so during the 1950s you see this special new unit that's called the task force in Chicago that becomes um, that becomes an instrument almost singularly of racial repression in Chicago. It's supposed to be a like a rapid response team that just goes and sets up massive wings of stop, or massive webs of stop and frisk mm-hmm. wherever it's assigned to. Mm-hmm. It's not a surprise that it's more, it's like 30 times more likely to be assigned at that point in time to like Woodlawn mm-hmm. than it is to other, you know, to like, <laughs> to Woodlawn than it is to like Hyde Park, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Uh, I, I do wanna first of all say that the joke that I made about um, getting high, it didn't mean that I didn't like my job that I had to <laughs> <laughs> let me be clear about it. Because you, you mentioned like thousands of people are going to be hearing this, and I just want to clarify that I do like my job now. I'm not trying to get in trouble with my current employer. Like I do, you know, appreciate having the job that I have now, and I like the job that I have now. But I miss I miss Chicago. I miss Chicago. So I'm just gonna put it like that. Um, we can edit it out. What was the question again? We'll just edit everything you yeah. say out. Okay, there you go. <laughs> I mean, the question was around like. Now I can really, you know, <laughs> cut loose. It's Friday. <laughs> Friday night. You've had a couple glasses of wine. Yes. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna get edited out anyway. <laughs> it's fine. Cool. You guys are gonna hear the real deal, but everybody else on the podcast are gonna the hear like the. Reviews. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My question is because you did a really good job answering that one, so yeah, I don't want to. Like, I think you're just confused about Simon, the polymath because I talked. Yeah. With my, I talked with my hands a lot, so it looks like it. It's almost like you wrote a book about it. Yeah. Okay, so um, Toussaint, you you've been involved in housing justice and uh, anti eviction work with the Chicago anti eviction campaign in yeah. past years. Can you speak to the way that the Chicago police have historically played a role in enforcing anti blackness in housing developments? Okay, I think. I mean, I think the the. Um, 
the most interesting uh, point to kind of keep in mind, and this builds kind of on what Simon was saying as some sort of earlier points, is that, so you take the Chicago Police Department, as Simon pointed out, was kind of literally created by corporations in Chicago as a way to um, control working class people in the city, right? Poor and working class people in the city. Like that's kind of, it's like, there's like a document probably where like they're like this, we're creating this so we can keep the workers in line, basically. Um, that part of what um, has been a dynamic of how working class people have been kept in line is in addition to having the police, you also have this dynamic of, well, if you are, if you can be deemed white, right? If you can be understood to be white, then you might understand yourself as getting better privileges than those workers who are considered black, right? Mm -hmm. So part of what um, has, and Chicago has been sort of a laboratory for this, but this has happened all around the country, is that um, the dynamics of racial segregation have made it possible to help kind of reinforce and build on uh, that um, racial segregation in terms of how working class people are treated, right? Uh, and understand themselves at the same time. So there's ways in which some of the violence that Simon was talking about taking place during the early um, 1900s, where you had um, white folks who were terrorizing black folks who oftentimes were trying to move into, move out of the sort of slum conditions in the black belt and move into um, somewhat better housing conditions. Um, the sort of policing of that out migration from the black belt in the Black Belt being in Chicago, not like the southern United States, right? Um, that um, was, was a way of maintaining what at that time people called the color line, right? Between, um, that separated black folks and white folks in a very kind of, uh, you know, abstract, not abstract, but like Arbitrary. generalizing, yeah. yeah. Well, generalizing, Gen right, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and part of um, what, I, what I think has, is an important part of the story is that, um, you have moments where that color line breaks down or where there's efforts to kind of back that up where you have um, everyday white people who are enacting some of the violence and that part of what um, really starts to change in some ways around the time that Simon sort of pinpointed as being a sort of turning point is that some of the, um, some of the ways in which that color line is being enforced is uh, more and more the responsibility for that is being taken up by the Chicago Police Department, mm -hmm. especially as we get into the 60s where you have hundreds of thousands of uh, black folks from the South who are migrating to, um, who are, sorry, who are migrating to Chicago. And you also have, um, at the same time, some of those barriers around racial segregation breaking down, right? Where the, mm -hmm. the neighborhoods in which um, black Chicagoans are living in are not simply um, what we would, uh, today refer as low end, right? But increase into uh, other parts of the south side and increasingly on the west side and what have you. And that um, in many ways, some of that initial policing is being done by the residents of, those, of the neighborhoods who are like, we don't want any black people moving in here, right? Um, and then after a while, as those, um, as those dynamics of racial segregation, racial residential segregation break down and the sort of neighbor-to-neighbor uh, -neighbor violence, the same sort of bombings that um, Simon was talking about happening during the 20s and, and prior to that, um, 1919, 1918, right, um, are taking place during the 1950s, and there's many riots that take place in different parts of the city as you have maybe one or two black families move into those neighborhoods. As that dynamic kind of um, ebbs away, 
right? Um, you have increasingly the Chicago Police Department as being the sort of um, the main arbiter of maintaining not just um, some of the different dynamics of residential segregation, but also the enforcement of that color line, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. in some ways kind of still exists in Chicago today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Some ways, wow. sort of actually yeah. it does, but anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay, so it's absurd how fast an hour almost goes by. We're, mm -hmm. at, we're almost at time. Um, I know, it's ridiculous. Okay, no, but we are gonna keep, we're gonna keep going, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just put Encore. planting the seed, right? Encore. Um, uh, <laughs> Encore, yes. We'll go for another hour. No, I'm just kidding. So um, I also, I, we f I feel really cool. I don't know about you, but we have an audio engineer. Uh, can we give it up for Sarah Lou, who's doing all the audio Woo! in the back? Were those real coughs, or were you telling people to talk louder? We are sorry, audio engineer. <laughs> All right, so just wanted to, you know, you should Hopefully those Sarah. will get edited out as well, too, I right? <laughs> <laughs> bam, bam. Okay, do you want to, are you? Oh, goodness, yeah, okay, questions. I have a lot. Um, I mean, I, big things that are coming up right now, resistance, what did that look like? What happens after the 60s, right? Um, those are all feel really important. Um, but I guess what, what are, one of the, the biggest ways I can frame it is like, what do you think are the most important lessons from your book, you know? Um, and maybe it's around resistance, maybe it's what happens after, but I'm gonna just leave it to you to define that. I mean, I guess, I guess the, the question is, I, I, I guess I could answer the question in one of two ways. So I could answer the question in terms of what it, like, what's the most significant takeaway from his, for historians, but I think that like probably what, for this setting, we're talking about activism, right? I mean, there's, there's a really rich history of activism surrounding policing in Chicago, right? I mean, the, the, I think a lot of the, the popular narrative surrounding, you know, recent activism is that this is somehow like uh, some, something relatively new. Um, but it's got such a long and rich historical lineage. Um, and I think that part of, I think that's, I think for one, that's worth acknowledging, right? I think it's, I think it's worth knowing, I think, you know, for, for all of us activists, I think it's worth understanding our heritage and that we have one. Um, the other thing though is, you know, there are actual clear models of previous activism that, that people might be interested in. I mean, so, I mean, the, where my book, ends kind of arbitrarily but mostly because I mostly because so my book ends in the night in the like mid 1970s mostly because as a historian I was just interested in pushing back against all of these framings that like really start the story there mm -hmm. I start the story in like the late 60s early 70s in terms of like mass incarceration and all that different stuff um, but the story that I really end with is um, is this community effort in Chicago for community control of the police? Yeah. I mean, so this is spearheaded by the by the Panthers, um, who are, you know, in the aftermath of. I mean, this is you know, 1973. I mean, it's 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 years after Fred Hampton's been assassinated, but but they use. I mean, like the. So one of the things is one of the things that I'm really interested in is how much the assassination of Fred Hampton by the Chicago Police Department served as this catalyzing moment. So like we always think about it as being this crushing moment, and it is. I mean, like it really is. But it also, I mean, the day after Fred Hampton gets assassinated, you have 
school walkouts of high school students all over the city that walk out of their schools in protest when school administrators refuse to acknowledge, refuse to hold, like they demand public, public memorials for Fred Hampton, all these different things. But so, so on the fourth, I think it's the fourth anniversary of the assassination of Fred Hampton, uh, Bobby Rush and other, and, and, and other Panthers and other uh, community leaders from across Chicago I mean, American Indian Movement. I mean, like a bunch, like so, like hundreds, like a hundred different organizations, collaborate to hold a conference to demand community control of the police. And in their mind, what community control of the police looks like is to—it's not necessarily abolition, um, but it's—it's it's at least semi-abolition, um, where what it looks like is completely decentralizing control over the police separating the police into different districts and giving people like and giving each of those districts complete control over what policing looks like within their community the residents of those districts the, will, will determine yes. will be accountable or will have some accountability over what the police do in those districts correct yes the residents of the neighborhood will determine what policing looks like in that neighborhood and then each of those each of those districts will elect somebody to a citywide board and then they'll they'll form policy but essentially what it is is to is to acknowledge the fact that Policing isn't working. Like it's not working for. I mean, it, well, it depends on what you mean by working, but but it's not working for a lot of the people in the commun in marginalized communities in Chicago. Can I add to that? Yeah. Okay, so um, please. Um, hopefully, I can add to that. I'll try. Um, one of the amazing things that I think is also um, that I discovered in some of my research or learned in some of my research um, that also highlights this. Um, really pointed moment that happens with Fred Hampton's assassination that um, Simon was just talking about was some of the first uh, people who came to Fred Hampton's department after his assassination were black members of the Chicago Police Department who had earlier formed a um, what they called the Afro-American Patrolman's League. And just to kind of give you all a sense of like how some of those struggles um, that Hampton and others were involved in kind of take us to sort of some of the very same questions that we're dealing with today. Um, uh, they, um, come, they had been in discussion with some of the Panthers before. Some of these older police officers talk about having, like having jobs where they moonlighted at UIC and they got to know some of the Panthers who were students there at the time and things of that nature. And they walk through the apartment and they talk to, they help the Panthers who are there identify what had taken place in terms of um, this uh, squad of the Chicago Police Department basically coming through um, Fred Hampton's apartment and machine gunning, uh, kind of just sweeps, uh, kind of doing these machine gun sweeps from wall to wall. And um, uh, help them uh, identify kind of what, what had taken place and also point out the fact that the Chicago Police Department hadn't secured the apartment as, you know, for evidence gathering purposes, they basically left it open. And that starts a process where the Panthers uh, day by day after Hampton's assassination, bring everyday people through the apartment and let them see for themselves what the Chicago police had done in terms of not simply coming in and like serving a warrant or something like that, sort of stuff that you might see on like TV now, today or whatever, but had um, really uh, kind of performed this sort of hit squad type of activity, right? Um, those uh, police officers who were not so involved in some of the work around police accountability later uh, get involved in some of the more, uh, let's not say, let's say not as quite radical 
um, police accountability efforts as was being led by the Panthers, but really try to support some of what the Panthers are doing, but are also connected to some of the um, black elected officials, the aldermen at that time. And um, uh, a decade later um, are some of the folks who help support um, Harold Washington's first run for, uh, for mayor in the late 1970s, and again when he successfully runs for mayor in uh, 1983. And one of, his, one of Washington's main um, campaign uh, pledges is to significantly reform the way in which police accountability happens in the city of Chicago. So not to take it to the lengths that uh, Simon was pointing to in terms of this model that the Panthers really uh, helped to promote in terms of saying, we should have democratic control over the way in which police operate. People in each, in each police district should have a say. If you can get like a jury duty summons, right, and you have to then go decide what the sentence for somebody is going to be in terms of um, a crime that was committed and so on and so forth, you are also astute enough as a citizen to, to, to determine whether or not the police are properly conducting themselves as um, you know, empowered law enforcement officers, right? That was part of the, um, the kind of uh, mentality that kind of uh, undergirded this, um, uh, what the Panthers were trying to do. Um, it wasn't as radical as that, but it was, a, it was a fundamental demand for greater police accountability in the city of Chicago, and one that um, Washington wasn't able to fully carry out, in part because of the resistance um, that happened in the city council, but in part he blamed some of his supporters. He said, y'all like me too much. Y'all think I'm such a great person and what have you, but y'all are not pushing me after I've been elected to do some of the things that you elected me to do. And I, you know, in his last kind of, um, in his last uh, months before he died of a heart attack, uh, there's conversations with some of his closest aides where he's like, you know, I'm kind of concerned that I'm not getting as much of a push as I should be in terms of really uh, following through on some of the basic demands. Um, and one of those being this uh, fundamental demand to at least take the way in which uh, police oversight in the, city of in the city of Chicago and the department works out of the police department and make it not just an independent um, and civilian-run agency, but one where um, there's greater popular control over the way in which police operate. And it's one that folks are still working for today. So the very demand for CPAC, the very demand for CPAC uh, that's on the table that people have been pushing for for the past several years, that is like the basic campaign pledge that Harold Washington had when he first ran for office in 1983. And it's something that, just to show you kind of how much sort of things have moved backwards or not really moved forward, the, um, you know, the effort to really get a fair hearing for that and actually get that on the table and really make sure that um, the police are not just out doing their own thing because they can do their own thing, but actually have to take their, their directions from the people who live in the districts that they're supposed to work in. That, which is, again, not as radical as what the Panthers were proposing, it, well, sorry, is not as radical as, say, like uh, police abolition, but is kind of closer to what the Panthers were proposing, uh, is kind of a very fundamental um, uh, kind of campaign that people still have to sort of mm -hmm. uh, really push against a fair amount of resistance to kind of get on the table today. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you really read my mind when it came to my next question. See, which that's why y'all had <laughs> me up here, because that's my... <laughs> because I was one, you know, I'm, we, our exhibition is sort of those 
those moments, right? Like the murder of Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, um, you know, the murder of Rakia Boyd, uh, Red Summer, right? It's all of those like those moments, right? Those really huge moments. Um, but I, I also am wondering like what are these sort of hidden stories or like stories about police violence that we don't often hear about, right? Like we know core people are um, brutalized and, and killed by CPD. We know folks with disabilities are as well, but we don't know these stories, right? We don't hear them enough. Um, so I'm really glad you all are bringing up sort of like black resistance that we don't often hear about um, in, in Chicago. Um, and I, so I want, so thank you for that also. Uh, but I wanna sort of um, shift a little bit to like the present time. Um, so. Simon, I know Miriam Kaba actually was the one that recommended uh, that we talk with you, which was really incredible. Um, and when I found out what the book was, I was like, oh, this is perfect for this exhibition. It's Red Summer to Black Power. Um, and I also was definitely just like searching you all over the Google. Um, <laughs> found out you were a singer-songwriter. Also found out that you've written a few articles on Chicago police violence, yeah. including uh, talking about the Citizens Police Data Project um, in Chicago, uh, in particular the case of Diane Bond um, in 2013. Um, and most people don't know her story either. So I'm wondering if you could um, tell us about her story um, and then what it sort of sparked in exposing Chicago police um, department corruption. Is everyone familiar with like the Chicago, the, the, Indivi the Invisible Institute? Invisible Institute, yeah. Yeah, yeah they're, they're the ones that have a, uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, so this is just we this. Are. We yeah. are. Right, right, yeah, I mean, I, got it. I, I guess yeah. I was, I'm like facing the wrong I know, you're yeah. I I'm like, yes. <laughs> I mean, so, so, the, so the Invisible Institute is just, I mean, it, it, it compiled this just incredible database that's searchable for everybody to look at, uh, basically documenting every single aspect not every single aspect, but it's, it's do it documents uh, complaints, citizen complaints against the police. Um, and, you know, when I, I started, so I, I started looking through it, um, trying to remember it, I mean, this is a couple of years ago, but I started looking through it when it first went live, um, you know, and, the, and the story of Diane Bond was, was one of the things that struck, that, that, that stuck out to me. Um, but really the, what stuck out to me more than her particular story was, um, was the police officer who assaulted her. I mean, and so you have what, what the Invisible Institute's data shows, and again, it, this is a remarkable data set because anybody can go look at it, is you can go look at what individual officers are doing to people that they are complaining about and also see how little the police department does about it. I mean, so... So the, the, the officer that I wrote about in that particular piece, I f cannot remember his name, um, but he had something like 68 citizen complaints against him in a very, very short amount of time. And I think he had one day of paid time off as, a, as punishment. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the Chicago Police Department does not have an accountability system that functions. Um, and, I, and I was thinking about this when, when you were uh, talking to Son, like, there's, there's a real particular reason why it doesn't have it. Um, and the ironic thing is that the, um, the ironic thing is not, it's not that the administration of the police department has not always wanted it, it's that the police officers themselves have not always wanted it. When I look at the data set that the Invisible Institute is, is putting together, that's really the story is just like how much resistance, I mean, it's, it's on the one hand how abusive and violent and harassing a lot of officers are, but it's also just how much of a failure any sort of accountability mechanisms are, and that's also historically constructed. So I, my last question is, is sort of in appreciation of those things that you're bringing out. Like what I'm hearing as someone who's organizing right now is like, 
uh, a deeper understanding of how far deep the history of, of yeah. what we're fighting up against goes and that it's it's um, is that helpful or depressing? I, I, I find it really helpful. It much more matches the, yeah, like, at least, like, yeah. I want to put this out there, and I hope people learn from it, but I really hope that they don't, like, curl up in a bowl and, right. like, right. a you know, yeah. good bottle of vodka and just be like, ah. Everything you tried been done before and didn't yeah. work, right? Yeah, like yeah, I, yeah. But, I, I mean, that, that to me is important, right? and I appreciate that intervention because I think it's, it's really critical right now. And I know folks have been saying it in their own ways, but it's, it's, it's nice to have something to reference. But I guess, what do you, what do you both say? like I know you from your organizing right and then I was like oh Annie's is academic intellectual word but like what what is like you, what are you gonna do with it right like what what does this mean in terms of the day-to-day -day practicality of what we're trying to do on the ground I always first of all I always appreciated the um, there's this quote from Malcolm X where he says of all our studies history is best suited to reward our research right if we want to understand the dynamics of a particular problem that we are confronted with um, one of the things that we one of the best ways to get a handle on how to confront that problem, how to deal with that problem, is to examine the history of it, as well as how other people have tried to deal with similar sorts of problems. And um, not, not to say that it's gonna solve all of, you know, it's not gonna completely solve the problem, but it'll help us have a better understanding of how to handle it. And um, I, one of my hopes, uh, one of the hopes that I have uh, of, kind of what people might take away from reading, say, Simon's book, is that it'll give them an, uh, an understanding of this deeper history and the way in which the reality that they face today has come to be, right? Mm -hmm. And how, um, uh, kind of an understanding of how things can change historically means in some ways that the institutions that we face are not, um, you know, th they haven't existed for uh, millennium, like they're relatively, um, new, they're relatively recent, and just like the fact that they've been created, they can be done away with. And that um, there are, as, as was said earlier, lessons that we can take from earlier eras in terms of how that can shape um, our practice today. I mean, you said you knew me from my organizing. One of the things that was really crazy about some of the, one, one thing, there's a lot of things that have been crazy about some of the organizing that I've had to do in Chicago, which is probably one of the reasons why I had to leave, because I was like, this is too crazy. But um, we were doing anti-eviction organizing in the midst of the housing crisis. That same sort of thing was happening during the Great Depression, where people were doing anti-eviction organizing. And Simon was talking about, you know, there were these protests where people were taking the belongings back into the house. God, I did that like multiple times where somebody would yeah. get evicted and you would take their belongings back into the house. And it was a way in which we um, were dealing with a situation where um, we were in conversation with other um, housing organizations around the country and they were saying, yeah, we do these protests when the evictions happen and we like, you know, some people get arrested. And, in like Wisconsin, they did this crazy, in like Madison, they did this crazy thing where people would like lock arms in these like steel, yeah. uh, sorry, in these um, uh, plastic barrels and they'd pour cement in them. And PVC so they would, pipe? Yeah, PV, all this crazy <laughs> stuff. I don't know why, I don't know, maybe you guys know about the PVC pipe thing. But, maybe. Um, there were these really, um, uh, really very like um, dedicated forms of resistance to blocking mm -hmm. evictions. And we were like, well, that's cool wherever you are, because they tell you when the eviction is going to happen. Here in Chicago, they don't tell you when somebody's going to get evicted. They give you an eviction order, and they say, we can come anytime between now and like a month later, right? Any, you know, Monday to Friday, whatever. whatever. But we're, you know, the eviction can happen at any point. So we can't do the same sort of things that do, people do in other places. But lo and behold, we can do 
one of the things that people were able to do in the past where we would put people's belongings back in and then we would find ways to keep people back in their homes. And um, one of the things that we tried to do out of that was not simply say, we'll put you back in their ho that home, but we use that action as the foundation um, for greater community organizing amongst you and your neighbors and so, so forth, because we understand fundamentally that what's gonna be able, what's gonna make it possible for somebody to stay in that house is not simply what we do as kind of this group of activists who are um, trying to uh, stop evictions, but also because of um, the residents, the folks who live in that given neighborhood. And um, that's a sort of very long way of saying that, um, you know, this history is really important because this history can help, I think at the most fundamental level, it can really help to stretch our imaginations, right? And not imagination simply in terms of saying like, um, like, and I'm not trying to like diss Afro, it's not like uh, kind of futuristic, <laughs> utopian <laughs> vision. No, I'm, it's not, I'm not, I'm not being, I'm not being petty. I'm just trying to say like, like how do we, how do we deal with the problem that's in front of us um, thinking about less, thinking about examples of how people have tried to deal with sort of similar kind of problems, I think really gives us uh, um, a broader imagination of what's possible. Just like if I was like really interested in playing basketball, right, or uh, any sort of sports, I'm not going to try to limit the analogy. If you watch how other people play the game, then you're like, okay, they did this play, or they, you know, somebody got really good at three-pointers by practicing in this particular way. You come up with new ideas, new examples, and in a similar sort of way, I think doing um, a really um, thorough job of learning our histories can, can stretch our imaginations in a similar way. And to be honest, it's kind of the reason why I went to academia to some degree, because I felt like, and this is again no shade, I felt like us as activists and organizers were not doing as good a job as we could in terms of teaching, like taking time to teach ourselves to learn this history. And that's why we have the lit review. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and yo, this is also this is also why we don't do live shows because I feel like we could talk for another two hours right. in our houses. Yeah. Like, yeah. Paige interviewed uh, uh, Fanny oh, Rushing. Yeah. It was four hours. It was six hours. Six hours. Four hours to record. And Paige was yeah. like, Monica, I have something Great. to tell you. Uh, it was life. six hours. I was like, Straight what? up changed my life. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so got to close up a little bit now um, before we open up to Q&A to the audience. Uh, so something that we ask folks uh, that are on our show to do is to read uh, their favorite passage from the book. Um, so I'm wondering, Simon, if you could read your favorite passage. Um, and also, when does the book come out? Uh, later this year. Oh, okay. uh, The fall of 18. Okay. Yeah. Great. Is it going to um, drop like one of those rap records these days where it comes out on like a Friday evening and you have to yes. get it off of Spotify? Yes. Like, It'll Here's the link. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Goes viral. <laughs> this is literally like the last page or so from the book. Um, if we accept that the actual police mission within Black Chicago is and has been to serve and protect, there is no way that it can be considered anything remotely like a success historically or now. Acknowledging that fact means we must reach for something more. What is required in the more ideological sense is what Martin Luther King called the radical revolution of values, reorienting ourselves from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. It's only that sort of revolution that can subvert the fundamentally unjust society that conjures so much misery in the first place. It is that sort of revolution, a hard-jawed look in our collective mirror, that might convince us once and for all that it is an unforgivable absurdity for a city which reflects the larger society to complain that it can't afford to provide basic human necessities for its citizens 
while at the same time spending more than a billion dollars every year to surveil and police those same citizens. More people must reflect more deeply and more honestly about the circumstances society has cultivated for millions of their countrymen and countrywomen, and must be honest with themselves that it is an almost uniquely ugly picture. More immediately and pragmatically, we must also reimagine what police departments can, can be and or should look like. There are many who would argue that they should not exist at all, so great has the human misery that they would have wrought. One can disagree with these arguments, but their sincerity and urgency requires reckoning. If we accept anything short of abolition, it is worth taking seriously the political project of dramatically scaling back the size of police departments like the CPD and turning more authority over them to the people themselves. Community control activists in the 1970s did not get what they sought, and they faced criticisms in abundance that civilians could not be trusted to effectively oversee police operations. But that sort of argument presupposes that police departments have done a good job of overseeing themselves, when almost precisely the opposite is true. The only time that Chicago has come close to having a functioning accountability system was for a brief six-year window in the 1960s, and that one was fought tooth and nail from within the department. It's worth asking, then, what precisely there is to be lost by actually democratizing the police and giving individual communities voice in what the mechanics and foundations of policing look like within their neighborhoods. Regardless, we must be very clear on one thing. The issues we confront today have germinated for a very long time. They are not going to magically revert back to some better and more equitable state because they did not originate in a better and more equitable state. Mm -hmm. We must face that first before anything else. Awesome. Give it up. Yes, yes, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement. We are your co-hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May, two Chicago-based organizers. Special shout out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College. Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place. Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And if you like this episode, give it a shout out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep, Keep reading! reading.